Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you, Carolyn. Whenever Paul was writing to Timothy on one occasion, he offered this advice. He said, watch your life and doctrine closely. And the first part of this, this idea of being careful how you live, well, that resonates with the vast majority of people, Christian or not. Most of us would agree that you should pay attention to the way you conduct your life. That you should watch it. That behaviour matters. That ethics matter. But it's the second aspect of Paul's advice that doesn't sit just as comfortably. Watch your life by all means, but doctrine, dogma, those are rather negative words in our society today because they're often associated with argument and division. People clash over doctrine, don't they? And people who are interested in doctrine are sometimes considered slightly dangerous. And therefore, whenever you hear somebody being advised to watch it closely, society gets, or increasingly gets, nervous. And so tonight, we as a church are embarking on what might be considered a risky venture. Because we're starting a new Sunday night series exploring this very issue because we are actually convinced that doctrine is critically important despite its bad press. But before we go any further, let me ask you a question. What is doctrine? How would you define it? Whenever you hear that advice from Paul to watch your life, I'm sure you know exactly where that, what that means, but whenever Paul says watch your doctrine closely. What does that mean? Now let me be up front as we launch into this series. My biggest fear is that it all could become quite dry. That it could be like a bunch of lectures. That there's lots of head stretching and very little heart engagement. And so I am keen to keep this series relatively devotional as well as technical. And I'm also really keen that this is fairly interactive. That anyone who comes on a Sunday nature in this series won't just feel like, well, I've come as a passive observer, but actually becomes an active participant. And uh, one way of helping that to happen is that in your pews, there are pens and bits of paper. Uh, there should be one for everyone. And I'd like you to grab one of each just at this moment. Now, if nothing else, it means that you can doodle without anybody wondering what you're doing because everybody's got a pen and a bit of paper but the reason I'm giving you this is that at various points I'm going to ask you questions and I'm going to encourage you to write down answers plus I am going to give you an opportunity at some point in the next sort of 20-25 minutes to write down one question that you or any of your friends have about tonight's specific subject because I realise that there is no way in the space of 20-25 minutes I'm going to answer or even come anywhere close to answering the questions you have about tonight's subject or that your friends have about tonight's subject. But for now, here's the first question. I just want you to complete the sentence, doctrine is dot, 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 go for it. Everybody have a bash, okay? Doctrine is what? There's some music playing in the background, but anyway. Doctrine is what?
Okay, few people. Shout out. Read out. Don't worry, if you catch my eye, I'm not going to ask you to do it, alright? So please look up. Don't all bury your heads in the pyramid. No, don't get out of contact. Okay? So go for a few people to read out just how you finished that sentence. Doctrine is teaching. Thank you. Sorry? The theory behind the practice. Thanks, everyone. What do you believe? One more? Specifics of what you believe? Truths of Christianity. Okay, raw definition. Doctrine is belief. It's exactly what people have said. It's what someone believes, or it's a set of beliefs, or it's a body of teachings. So whenever Paul is saying, Timothy, what I want you to do is, I want you to watch your doctrine closely. In other words, he was saying, Timothy, it's really important you pay close attention to what you believe. And the reason for that is belief impacts behavior. Belief impacts behavior, or at least it should. So it's what we believe. And so we've simply called this series, I Believe. But let me add a little bit more to that definition. And preparing for this evening, I've tried to read, I've tried to listen to others. And so some of what, a lot of what I'm going to be sharing is drawn from a collection of people, collection of books. But Tim Keller identifies three characteristics of doctrine. says this, it's something you take by faith. In other words, you can't prove it. It's something you trust in. It's something, in other words, you base your life on it. You're risking on it. And thirdly, it's something you promote. It's something you think is true. You're convinced it's good to believe it, and therefore you sense or you feel that other people should believe it as well. And therefore, whenever you think this through, and based on that criteria, everybody embraces doctrine-based living. He said again, everybody without exception, embraces doctrine-based living. Even the person who says that everybody should be free to determine what is right or wrong for himself or herself, to believe whatever they want, even that person is into doctrine. Because what he or she has just said by saying that fits that criteria. So for a start, they can't prove that. That's their opinion. They take that on faith. Secondly, it's something they're betting their life on. They can't prove there is no God. They can't prove there is no God who wants them to believe certain things. In many ways, people who think like that are hoping there isn't a God who wants them to believe certain things, but they can't prove there isn't a God. And thirdly, by saying everyone should be open-minded, because that's what people who promote that believe, everyone should be open-minded, that reveals that they want others to think what they think. That is their particular view of reality. That is their doctrine. Point is this we can't avoid doctrine. Everybody embraces doctrine based living. But once you've accepted that, you've then got to consider well, where do I place my beliefs? Because everyone has got to base their doctrine on something. And for us as a local church and as a bunch of Christians, we have chosen. It's a choice we've made. We have chosen to ground ours in the ancient wisdom of the Bible. And so this is a series specifically on Christian doctrine. On Christian belief. A Christian set of beliefs. And here's the list that over the next nine Sunday evenings we're going to work our way through. That I, that we believe in scripture, 
in God, in Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, in the atonement, in justification by faith, in the second advent, in heaven and hell, and the church. And we are convinced that as Paul has suggested, we need to watch this closely. We really, really do. And back to Keller's comments, we embrace these by faith. We're basing our life on these. And we want to share them with others. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking as you look down that list. And I have to say this. Surely not all Christians believe exactly the same things about each of these issues. Fair point. Surely some of these subjects have divided Christians. They've actually split churches. Absolutely. And so as we work our way through this series, we are going to probably highlight some, and it's only going to be some of the tensions that do exist. Because we've got to be honest about those. We've got to face up to them. We can't avoid them. We can't duck them. We can't bury our heads in the sands and think we all think alike because we don't. We don't all believe, even within the church, the same things about each of these issues. And we need to address that. But ultimately what we want to do, what I want to do, and others who are involved in this series, is to present an accessible, engaging overview of basic Christian belief. And this evening, we're going to start by looking at Scripture. Now here's what I want you to do, pen and paper again. I want you to write down one question. Either you or a friend of yours or someone you know has regarding Scripture. An issue for you when it comes to looking at the Bible. We may address some of it as we go through this tonight, but if we don't, what I want you to do is to hand those in at the end so that we make sure at some point we come back to this. Because there are very real questions that people have when it comes to Scripture. So go for it. Write down a question you have or you know other people have about it. So I'm assuming we've got at least 50, 60 questions. Okay, let's see how many of them uh, I, I answer as we go along and then how many we're going to need to pick up on. Now, I, I did wonder whether we should, and I spoke to somebody about this, I did wonder whether we should actually start with God because fundamentally everything did. In the beginning, God, not in the beginning, Scripture. In the beginning, God. But where do we read that truth? Well, we read it in Genesis 1, verse 1. How do we know anything about God? How do we know anything about God? From his word. Although not just from his written word. I'll say more about that in a moment. And so as we begin to investigate Christian doctrine and introduce scripture, we need to ask ourselves this critical question. How do you decide what is correct Christian teaching. I'm not asking you at this stage to answer that one. But how do you decide what is correct Christian teaching? In other words, in light of the diversity of thought and the range of opinions that do exist, where do you go? Where should you go to resolve the difficulties and the conflicts? Because as we wrestle with various issues, we need 
a source of authority. And that's our first key word this evening. And as we work our way through this, I'm going to make reference to five key words. Here's the first, authority. And down through the years, Christians have appealed to a variety of sources of authority. Here's a list of them. Creeds. Summaries of Christian truth. Summaries of Christian belief, primarily constructed during times of theological confusion. The Nicene Creed, probably the best known as the Apostles' Creed. In fact, we almost did a series based on those incredible words, a creed that I love. But the question is, can it serve as the final source of authority? Or is a creed a little too general? Second thing people have appealed to is the historic confession, statements of Christian faith that belong to the Reformation and post-Reformation period. Therefore, they are in many ways party statements reflecting a particular view of one branch of the universal Christian church. Then there's the mind of the church, consensus of opinion. But as we all know, Christian consensus is extraordinarily difficult to nail down. Opinions vary. Opinions change. Then there's Christian experience, which looks at human experience of God and then tries to identify beliefs based on that experience. But as you can appreciate, all experience is subjective. Therefore, it's limited and often it's biased. Christian reason, that's what people have appealed to. It's an appeal to logic, rational considerations of truth. But again, limited because human beings are primarily involved and let's face it the mind of the created can never adequately measure the creator or there's the inner voice that voice within that some people appeal to some people refer to this as the prompting of the holy spirit and that's what offers authority now the thing is that each of these makes a contribution a significant contribution And so in no way am I rubbishing or am I criticizing any one of them. But none of them, this is really important again, none of them provide us with an adequate authoritative source of Christian truth. So now it's in a sense time for a major statement, possibly worth writing down. The ultimate source of authority, and there's no surprise in this, But the ultimate source of authority is God himself as he is made known to us through the words of the Bible. And it's so important that we get hold of this. Remember, this is faith. can't prove this. You see, God took a decision. It's God's initiative to make himself known to us. And this process of God making himself known is called, and here comes the second key word tonight, it's called revelation. And what revelation means is unveiling something hidden so that it might be seen or known for what it is. And the truth is that God has graciously revealed himself to us. He took that initiative. He made that decision. And there are two recognized branches, so to speak, of revelation. There's general revelation. There's special revelation. Revelation. Now, general revelation takes us back to a comment I made a moment ago about God's non-written word. And it also takes us to the first six verses of the psalm that Carolyn read for us. And it's why I asked Carolyn to read that psalm as part of our opening devotion. 
because what that says is the heavens declare. I want you to think about this. The skies, I love the way Carolyn worded her prayer as well on the back of this. But the, sky, the heavens declare, the skies proclaim, they pour forth speech. Their voices and their words go out to the ends of the earth. In other words, whenever you look up and you look around, you discover God's non-verbal communication. Coming to us from the natural world, sending us information, constantly sending us information about God. And the thing about nature is, nature can affect you. Nature affects you like great art, like great theatre. It can move you to tears. Nature can fill you with wonder fill you with a sense of awe, with grandeur. It sings for you. It plays to you. That's what the psalmist is saying. And so it is possible for every single human being to experience something of the joy of God speaking to them, even when they don't believe in God. Because the skies proclaim it. The heavens, the skies proclaim it. General revelation, primarily creation, speaks and reveals God to all people everywhere. But nature is not enough. Psalm 19 doesn't and can't end at verse 6. Nature doesn't tell us enough about God. And in addition, the thing about nature is that nature often sends out mixed messages, as we've seen all too frighteningly this week in Haiti. What does that tell us about God this week? mixed messages general revelation isn't enough and so the special revelation of God comes to us through his word and special revelation surpasses general revelation because it adds clarity skies proclaim the heavens declare but God's word brings clarity and the special revelation of, of God comes to us through his word and it's there that we meet and we learn about Jesus Christ it's there that we base our preaching our teaching it's there that we find a foundation for what we believe this is God's self revelation his authoritative self revelation expressed in words written words this is pure time for the third key word it's pure inspiration because we believe that this book, these written words, are inspired by God. And the classic text for this is another one of those 3.16 verses. 2 Timothy 3.16, which in the King James Version reads like this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We're probably more familiar with the translation that confirms that all scripture is God-breathed. In other words, what we have in our hands has been exhaled by God. And that affirms its divine origin and its divine character. Now again, I know there are lots of discussions and debates regarding the exact nature of inspiration. I'm not going to deny that or duck that. There are many theories when it comes to inspiration. For example... Were 40 human authors, were they effectively bypassed in the production of this? How, how did that work? 
If this is God breathed and yet there are 40 different authors, how, how did that actually work? I mean, were they like human keyboards? Did God simply dictate and then they wrote or they typed out the words? Or was it more of a case that God supervised the writing of Scripture? Yes, the authors were all very different, different backgrounds, different styles, different emphasis, but God exercised control over them and how they actually wrote. There are other theories, but in some ways, and I know this may, be, this may seem like I'm ducking this one, there are other theories, but in some ways I am content to accept them, yes, by faith, that what we have here, all of what we have here, that all Scripture is inspired by God. Exactly how? Yes, it's an interesting issue. But ultimately, it's a secondary issue. Either I believe and accept by faith that this is all inspired by God, or I don't. This is God's special self-revelation. And because it's God's special self-revelation, that means it's profitable. That means it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in the right way of living. In other words, what that means is if we take it by faith as this, that we can base our lives on it. And many of us sitting here tonight are doing exactly that. We're risking on this. This is dictating how we live our lives. This is dictating the choices we make. Back to Psalm 19. Because David in verse 7, and I like the way Carolyn broke this down for us, but David in verse 7 then moves from the non-written word of God to the written word of God. And if you look at verse 7, and remember as we read this, that the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, and the ordinances of the Lord are synonyms for Scripture. They are not parts of Scripture. Really important that we get that. Because let's read again from verse 7. Just two verses if you still have it there. The script, the law of the Lord is perfect. Refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant. Giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and all of them are righteous. And what David is saying here is that Scripture, God's Word, is trustworthy. It's perfect. It's right. It's radiant. Those are strong adjectives. Perfect means flawless. Now we get into difficult terms. Perfect means flawless. Sure means you can trust this. Right implies the idea of a straight edge. In other words, it's a thing by which you can measure other things. And that is why, when it comes to judging all standards, we judge them by Scripture. It's a straight edge. And so a couple of other key words that come into play here, and based on this idea of the perfection of God's Word are these, infallible and inerrant. And in other words, I don't want to get too deep into this because I don't have time and I can't. In other words, we can have total confidence in this. It's entirely trustworthy. Now, I know that not every interpretation of God's word is infallible or is inerrant. But even when you bear that in mind, as David says, Scripture is perfect. But what I want us to notice whenever we were reading through it is what Scripture actually does. Because what you believe about Scripture is important. 
But actually, why you believe in Scripture is crucial. And in a sense, this is the doctrine I really want us to get hold of. Like why we actually think it's worth believing. And if you look at verses 7 or 8, this is what David says. Scripture refreshes the soul. In other words, it revives you. Scripture makes you wise. It can stop you from making huge mistakes in your life. Scripture gives joy to the heart, a deep down contentment. Scripture gives light to the eyes. It restores sight. It provides spiritual insight. This material, in other words, is powerful. Not only, and this is where I think we get stuck, not only does God's word inform, it transforms. That's what we believe when it comes to a doctrine of Scripture. It's not just about information, it's about transformation. I don't know how many of you remember back to the series we did on holy habits. But one of the evenings we looked at biblical engagement. And as part of that service in March 09, we investigated how does the Bible actually describe itself? What are the pictures scripture uses of picture? What are the images it paints? What are the metaphors it uses? And we actually looked at seven. And now it's time for a little memory test. Okay? And you can do this in teams. Okay? You can grab as big a team as you want. But what I want you to do is I want you to try to remember the seven images that Scripture uses to describe itself. The first one was bread. Okay? That's the easy one. But there are six others. And there's an extra prize if you can guess, or guess, no, if you can identify the reference for each. Okay? So go ahead. Turn around. Person beside you. See if you can list seven. And if any of you bring a little notebook to church and I see you flicking back in your notes... You're going to be... Alright? I'll give you two minutes to come up with the seven images. Thirty seconds. It's eight o'clock and I want to honour your time. Right, okay, here we go. Bit of feedback. Bread was one of them. Can anybody tell me any of the references to bread where God's word is described as bread? Roughly. John? <laughs> Luke, actually. To gospel? Yeah. John 6 is bread. Right, any, any other images? That's one. There it is there. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Deuteronomy, and then Jesus quotes it in the temptation. Give me another image, picture, metaphor. Lamp, okay. That's two. Light, same as lamp, I think, uh, Patricia. Sword, thank you, that's three. Four more. Sorry? Honey. It wasn't one we looked at, but yes, it comes in here, Diane, I'll give you that, but it's not one of the seven. A mirror, thank you, who's very impressive, that's four. A hammer, brilliant, five. Two more. Two more. Fire, yep, that's six. One more. Milk, no, but like it. Sorry, no. 
Pardon? Scalpel. Brilliant. Yeah. Here, here's all the references if you're taking notes. It's double-edged sword, but I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. A scalpel, and I'll explain why I like that in a minute. Man doesn't live in bread alone, we just said. In other words, this book, if we go back to the bread image just for a minute, this book it is an essential ingredient for our life. This nourishes our soul at a very deep and profound level. Then when we come to this idea of a mirror in James, it's a book that reveals what needs fixing. Whenever you look into this, you see what needs to be changed, what needs to be altered, what needs to be put right. The third image is scalpel. His powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defence, laying us open to listen and obey. You see, this book will, if we let it, cut us open. And that's many people's testimony. It's whenever they encountered what was written in here, it exposed them for who they were. And also, it performed extensive surgery in their lives. It's a scalpel. This is what this does. This is why we believe this. It's not about information. It's about transformation. Fourth thing. Your words a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. It provides direction. It provides illumination. It provides guidance. Then it is fire. God's word purifies us. It refines us. It consumes us. I hope it consumes you. Your heart and your mind. It's a hammer. The second half of that verse from Jeremiah. It's constructive. It's also destructive. It's constructive. It's also destructive. And then it is a sword from Ephesians 6. It's a weapon of mass instruction. And it's also a weapon of defense. And for me, that is why our belief in Scripture is so important. This is why we must watch our doctrine closely. Because if we embrace God's Word, it will change us. It will radically alter our lives. I don't just believe this for the sake of believing it or so I can have arguments with people. I believe this because I honestly do believe that it can change my life. It can change my life. And David got that in Psalm 19. And so in describing scripture, and someone said this, in describing scripture, he said, listen, it's more precious than gold. He went on, in fact, he said, it's more precious than pure gold, and it's sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. To David, this word was priceless, and it was delicious. Priceless and delicious. Here was a man using the language to express that he had been ravaged by the beauty of scripture is that how I feel about this not, not up here not in my head in my heart is this priceless to me is this delicious sweeter than honey from the honeycomb and to a very large extent that's my prayer for us as a church I don't really want us as a church to get involved in lots of discussions, arguments, debates about all sorts of things to do with God's word to be perfectly honest but I do want this to be a church that watches our doctrine closely not as an academic exercise but because we recognise that this is God's special mouth-watering, exquisite self-revelation of who he is and we engage with it because we want to be changed by him nearly finished someone once said that the Bible needs no more defending than a lion and I agree 
And therefore, let me encourage you to just do three things with the Bible. Read it, listen to it, and enter into its story by faith. Because when you do, something happens at a very deep level. I recently came across this description of the Bible. It's my favourite by far that I've come across recently by a guy called Scott McKnight in a really interesting book called The Blue Parakeet, Rethinking How We Read the Bible. And this is what he says about the Bible. It's like an ocean, which on the surface appears gentle and strolling and pleasant to observe. And that's how many people see the Bible. Yeah, it's, it's nice. Gentle strolling, pleasant of it, but under the surface there's a vibrant, teeming, swirling, dynamic world of beauty and wonder. And my desire is that we as a church constantly get onto the surface of this authoritative, inspirational, perfect, infallible, inerrant self-revelation of God to dive deep and to enjoy the constant 